Welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week. Is this an opportunity finally after the separations of Brexit for the UK to sort of get back into Europe and to re-engage? But we need to start to rebuild confidence that we're a country that keeps its word, that means what it says, that delivers on its commitments. The problem has been ideological. The UK has refused to commit to any kind of structured relationship with the EU in the areas of uh, security and defence. Good morning, everybody, and thank you once again for joining us for the weekly podcast of Friends of uh, Europe, uh, devoted to European defence, the conflict in Ukraine, and broader uh, geostrategic issues. Well, uh, today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome as our special guest, uh, Lord Peter uh, Ricketts, who is one, at least here in the UK, but I think also in the EU, uh, one of the best known and best respected commentators. Peter is a distinguished uh, British diplomat. He's been ambassador to Paris, where I know they remember him most fondly. Uh, I remember him too from my time at NATO when he was the UK ambassador to NATO. uh, And he has also served at high level in government as the national security uh, advisor. Uh, Normally, I have the privilege of seeing him on the BBC or listening to him. But today, he's kindly agreed to join us on the Friends of Europe podcast. So, Peter, uh, as I said, great to have you. uh, And thanks for being our guest today. And I'm also, of course, delighted, particularly on these topics, to be joined uh, by my a fellow uh, senior fellow uh, at Friends of Europe, uh, Paul Taylor, a former diplomatic correspondent of Reuters, uh, a journalist of long-standing repute, uh, and who is now also, apart from being at Friends of Europe, a columnist for uh, Politico. So welcome to the two of you. So, uh, Peter, let's get directly to the check. So, I mean, Brexit has been a fact now for a few years. But most of us, and I think this is true if I can uh, take your name in vain, of all three of us, uh, uh, we want Britain to have close ties to Europe. Uh, We need pragmatic solutions. And of course, uh, this week, all eyes are on the uh, next EU summit in Prague, where a European political community is is to be launched. So, Peter, to get us going, tell us a little bit about that, how you understand the uh, genesis and the significance of that initiative. And and I suppose for those of us in the UK, is this an opportunity finally after the separations of Brexit for the UK to sort of get back into Europe and to re-engage with the EU on the future strategic direction of Europe? Well, thank you very much indeed, Jamie, and it's great to be back in harness with you and with Paul. We've all worked together for many years. The um, genesis of this idea of a European political community was in Emmanuel Macron's speech to the European Parliament in Strasbourg in May, one of his wide-ranging long speeches just after his re-election. And uh, he threw out the idea at the end of a discussion uh, of Ukraine's then recent uh, request to uh, join the EU. Um, And Macron had just been explaining to the European Parliament that realistically, the prospect for Ukraine becoming a member was several decades away. Uh, At the same time, Georgia and Moldova had also just put in a request to join the EU. And so the idea was pitched very much in the context of uh, enlargement process, um, also conscious that countries like Kosovo and Albania were fretting, getting impatient at the long period spent in the antechamber to the EU. 
And uh, Macron commented that uh, the EU itself couldn't be the only way of structuring the European continent. And therefore, he said, we need a European uh, political community as a forum for debate and discussion going beyond the EU. And that um, took me back to earlier decades of French thinking about the EU and to what I think is a pretty fundamental idea in French minds about how you structure Europe. Um, they used to call it concentric circles. Um, uh, in other words, you would have, of course, France and Germany at the center, uh, and you would have different rings of um, integration, rather like a solar system. And as part of that, an outer ring of countries that weren't uh, part of the EU, subject to its disciplines, but uh, where there would still be a forum. And indeed, he specifically referred to an earlier French idea by Mitterrand in 1989 for what he then called the European Political Confederation. At that time, just after the Berlin Wall fell, that included Russia as well. It never in, in the end went anywhere. So Macron pitched the idea very much as a way of uh, giving those who want to join the EU but aren't going to do so for a long time a forum in which to sit at the big table and talk about the major issues. But he included in it the idea that those who uh, had recently left the EU, i.e. the UK, and others might be part of it as well. And the initial reaction in London was therefore pretty sceptical that we were being invited to join a kind of uh, also ran third division um, team, uh, you know, of no hopers for the EU. Uh, as it's evolved, it's become more than that. And of course, the Ukraine war has set the context for it. Um, and now the idea is that it will include countries that uh, are European, uh, but don't want to join the EU, like Norway, like Turkey, going a bit further afield, Israel, Switzerland, and also the UK. And I think in that broader context, um, Liz Truss thought that it was more of an opportunity than a risk, and she's agreed to go, which actually I was um, surprised by and, and you know, encouraged by to see that she did do that. I do not think the UK sees itself as joining a new institution. And I note that the British negotiators have said they'd rather change the name to something like a, you know, a European political forum um, so that it gets away from the idea of being anything to do with a community, which is a bad name for British conservatives. But the fact that Britain is going, the fact we understand that Britain also put in a bid to host the next meeting, I think is a positive step. And so to answer your question uh, at the end, um, yes, it could be one part of this bridge, which I hope can be built from the cooperation that's developed around the Ukraine war to a wider, uh, uh, more permanent discussion, at least of political and security affairs between the UK and the EU. Peter, thanks very much. Now, Paul, I know that you also, as always, have strong views on these topics, particularly the European political community um, and the way in which perhaps the UK could use it, as Peter said, to pragmatically re-engage with Europe. So let's go immediately to you. What, what's your take on this? Well, thank you, Jamie. This is really a historic moment, in fact, this week. Uh, which we shouldn't underplay. Uh, it's the first time since Brexit that the UK, uh, at the highest level, uh, will have entered the room with European Union leaders uh, collectively. And uh, the UK, since uh, Brexit has, it's fair to say, lived with its back to Europe, um, uh, to the EU at any rate, um, has been hostile towards the EU, has uh, tried to go back on the uh, agreements that it, it made and signed with the EU, notably 
uh, on trade between the UK and Northern Ireland. Um, and so it's quite an important moment. And it's also a moment where uh, the UK has taken um, uh, one, one fork in the road and not the other. Uh, it, it, it could have left an empty chair. There was some suggestion early on that it was quite likely to leave an empty chair. It hasn't done. And in fact, uh, what we're told is that the UK actually even offered to host the second summit of this forum. Um, and that in itself is interesting. Uh, some would say that that might have been seen as a bit of a, a takeover bid. And it's interesting that the UK has actually apparently not been granted that re re request from what I've, I've been told. And, um, and that the uh, next, uh, the follow-up meeting of the European political community will actually take place in Moldova. Now, Moldova is, in, is important because it is a frontline state. It's right next to Ukraine. And it's also a country that's just become a candidate to join the European Union. And so the significance is that they've chosen a candidate country uh, rather than a country that has just turned its back on the EU. And that's, I think, something which also says something about where uh, Britain's standing is in Europe still. Um, there's a, there will be a long-standing, I think, uh, resentment of a country that has that turned its back on the EU and, and was seen by some as sort of trying to bring the whole of the EU down. How much substance it will have? I mean, there are people that I've talked to in London who sort of say, oh, well, you know, this will be a kind of a, you know, a talking shop that'll have a couple of meetings and it will all sort of blow over. There was, of course, suspicion in, in Central and Eastern Europe that this was a, a substitute for EU enlargement. This was a way of basically making sure that the countries in the Western Balkans uh, and now around the Black Sea never joined the EU. Um, that I don't think is the case, but I think that the French and those who pushed for this will be under pressure to uh, show that the enlargement process is real for the candidate countries and that this is not just uh, a second best. Okay, thanks, Paul. Uh, I'd like now to turn to France because both of you, of course, may have mentioned the, the role of France in uh, coming up with the idea based on previous French foreign policy. And of course, if the UK is to have any good relationship with the EU and Europe in general, it needs to have good relations to its closest neighbour, uh, France. Uh, uh, Peter, I, I mentioned in the introduction that you are a, a, a well-known a British friend of France, your ambassador in Paris. I know that you uh, were particularly close to the French and they trusted you so much that they brought you into a lot of their own strategic thinking. So if there's anybody who's capable of building bridges between London and Paris, it's you. But in the Boris Johnson years, uh, the relationship seemed to degenerate and very quickly. And, uh, and I know that this trust maybe didn't make the best start when she uh, refused to answer a question whether you whether she trusted President Macron. I understand that the, the two leaders met on the margins of the UN General Assembly a few days ago, but how do you sort of see the current state of uh, Anglo-French relations? Is it just a question of personalities, a bit of froth on the surface because of, you know, frictions over Brexit and migrants and that kind of thing? Or do you think there's a kind of deeper divorce going on, which is going to be very difficult to repair? So very good to, to get your take on that. And again, Paul, uh, I'll come to you afterwards because as somebody who has dual nationality and lives in France, uh, you all, of course also will have your views on this as well. But Peter first, please. Okay, thank you. Um, and the, the point to start at, I think, is that the French will be pleased that uh, Liz Truss has agreed to go to this uh, 
political community meeting in Prague. Just one more sentence on that before we move on. I think we shouldn't uh, have too high expectations. There are 44 countries around the table. This is a one-day meeting. People will get one uh, intervention uh, throughout the day. It's a sprawling group. It's got lots of internal contradictions. How will the Greeks and Turks get on? How will the Armenians and Azerbaijanis get on? Where does Serbia fit with um, uh, its very pro-Russian views as against East Europeans? So I think the risk is it will be just a talking shop this time. It'll have one further meeting. Whether Britain will agree to go to a meeting in Moldova is itself, I suppose, an open question. Um, it may go the way of other French initiatives like the European uh, cooperation Euromed, which uh, with the Europe, with the Mediterranean countries, which really you know became a, a huge talking shop. So we'll see. Anyway, to UK-French relations, uh, it is much more than froth. Um, there is a really serious loss of confidence on the part of the French in the seriousness of the British government. That, of course, is largely down to Boris Johnson and the handling of Brexit, the chaotic handling of Brexit, the failure to have clear British objectives pursued consistently. Uh, exacerbated by the threats to break international law, by tearing up parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol that Boris Johnson signed up to, further exacerbated by other frictions. And of course, many of the frictions arising from Brexit take place on French soil because of the massive movement between the UK and France of people and of freight, because of the fishing zones and therefore problems of fishing licenses, many other things. In a way, the Brexit irritations come home to rest most particularly between Britain and France. But Boris Johnson's particular habit of denigrating uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, of playing all their meetings for domestic political benefit, using the French as a convenient political football, really, really undermined confidence in Paris. So things are starting from a pretty low base, actually, um, uh, Jamie. I think the political relationship is worse than I can remember it. Uh, in my career. That's not to say that the people-to-people -people relations, the friendships, the family links, the commercial relations, the cultural relations, France's enormously deep appreciation of the royal family, and in particular the Queen, as we saw over uh, the funeral of the Queen, all those things are still there. But the political relationship is bad. And when the political relationship is bad, even the security and defence relationship is bad. So the very close defence cooperation we developed in my time as ambassador with the Lancaster House Agreements of 2010, very close defense industrial cooperation, much of that has faded away. The armed forces are still cooperating, but the defense industrial um, uh, collaboration is now pretty much uh, dead, and that is largely a result of the Brexit frictions. So a reset of the UK-French relationship has to pass by an improvement in relations between London and Brussels, and in particular, uh, walking back from this threat to break international law over the protocol. While that hangs over the scene and the British legislation grinds its way through the House of Lords this autumn, the French will not, I think, be prepared for a major reset. They will work, of course, pragmatically with us on Ukraine and Russia sanctions and so on. But we need to get that problem behind us and start to rebuild confidence that we're a country that keeps its word, that means what it says, that delivers on its commitments before the French, I think, will agree to a wide-ranging summit and to a series of new initiatives in defence and energy, which is, in the end, the way to reset the relationship. That feels to me still some way off. 
Uh, Peter, thanks. That was a, a sobering, uh, although very, uh, of course, informed view of the relationship. Uh, uh, Paul, do you share totally Peter's assessment, or do you think there may be a few more sort of rays of light or chinks uh, of hope in the armour, as it were? Uh, go ahead. Uh, I don't want to get even gloomier than Peter, but I mean, I would say that things are as bad mm. as they have been since General de Gaulle vetoed Britain's uh, bid for membership of the what was then the European Common Market in the in the sixties. Um, that's about how bad they are. I think that if you look from Paris across the Channel, I think first of all, the first thing is that very much the ball is in the British court. Um, Britain has um, blown this relationship up to a significant extent uh, through Brexit and through the way it's handled, as Peter described. It's up to Britain to make good, and especially after Truss's extraordinary friend or foe response. Um, about President Macron. Um, uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, I think if you look across the channel, um, you see a weak government, um, a weak prime minister already in trouble at home. And you also see um, something which the French have always warned against, um, which is uh, a temptation to try and use Brexit to turn Britain into a sort of Singapore on the Thames. That's to say a country of low regulation, um, uh, low labor standards, uh, and uh, a country that is, is trying to attract um, um, you know, lot, lots of um, uh, financial uh, businesses through uh, deregulation. And how far that will go, we don't know because of the difficulties the British government has already got itself into, uh, in, as, as uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss has embarked on that route. So I think that the temptation in Paris, frankly, is to wait Ms. Truss out um, and to wait until after the next British general election in the hope that that will produce a more pragmatic, more pro-European uh, government that will start to repair the damage. Thanks you for that. Um, for the rest of the conversation, I'd like to come back to the issue of UK EU relations, particularly in security and defense. And, uh, and Peter, uh, you know, the UK often sort of points out that you know, it's in NATO, obviously a major uh, player in NATO. It has good bilateral relations with individual EU countries working uh, on Iran or on Ukraine and big dossiers. It, it's part of regional security groupings like the normal group. So there's a kind of sense, well, we don't really need the EU. You know, we're all in, we're in these other frameworks and they allow us to engage and they allow us to take care of our security do you, do you do you buy that line that you know nato is a substitute for the kind of security benefits that the uk was receiving from the eu but bilateral relations are a good substitute for working with brussels how, how do you see the the security impact for the uk of, of leaving the eu um, and uh, uh, it, to have full security is it necessary to have a closer relationship with brussels or, or just draw closer to berlin or warsaw or copenhagen or Rome or whoever else. Okay, let's um, unpack that a bit, Jamie, because uh, the different strands of the security defence relationship uh, have different answers to them. If you're talking about defence cooperation, then clearly NATO is the forum, yes. And the UK has a leading role in NATO, rightly. Uh, we are the second largest um, uh, defence spender in NATO, most powerful European armed forces in NATO. Um, and the Ukraine crisis has, in a way, played to Britain's strengths. Britain had an existing relationship with the armed forces of Ukraine going back to 2015 and has been very effective in leading European efforts on, on Ukraine in the defence 
field. Um, but uh, NATO can't cover the totality of our security interests with Europe. Um, take, for example, uh, police and uh, law enforcement and judicial cooperation. NATO doesn't get involved in that. That's done through the EU. The UK has had to negotiate um, access to the various EU databases and information sharing systems um, and Europol, the uh, collaboration mechanisms for European, European law enforcement. It's not a bad deal, but it is part of the trade and cooperation agreement, and it can't be insulated from wider tensions between the UK and the EU. So NATO is not the whole answer to European security, and the UK cannot expect to have good relations bilaterally with its European neighbours on defence and security when the economic uh, relationship with the EU is bad. So yes, um, good cooperative relations with the EU are important. I don't say that um, uh, security has been damaged significantly so far by Brexit because we have negotiated ad hoc agreements on these justice and, and law enforcement issues. But if the relationship gets worse, for example, we get pitched into a trade war uh, with uh, Europe by uh, tearing up parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, that is bound to have an effect on security cooperation as well, because uh, security sits nested within the wider relationship with the EU. We've got time for one more question, and I'd like to ask both of you the same question, uh, beginning with Paul. Paul, uh, Peter, he wrote a study uh, for us at Friends of Europe some years ago when he was first starting out writing his studies uh, on UK defence and uh, obviously fitting uh, ambitions with budgets and so on. Uh, the reason behind my question is, of course, to be attractive to Europe. The UK has to remain that considerable military power that you described, Peter, uh, really having something to contribute, being worth courting. Uh, we've had the integrated review in the UK on, on defence and security and foreign policy more, more, more generally, uh, but also worries, of course, that you know the UK army is melting away, the Royal Navy is a fraction of what it used to be and so on. So, Paul, you first, you know, do, how, how sort of easy is it going to be, do you think, in the future for the UK to continue to sort of punch above its weight in military terms and therefore, you know, be an attractive partner? Uh, and Peter, I know that you're an aficionado of security reviews, <laughs> uh, both in the UK and France, as I said, you contributed to many. So how do you assess uh, the implementation of the integrated review? And uh, uh, do you think the the, the the finances will be there in future to fully implement it? So that's my final question to both, uh, to each of you. But Paul, uh, begin, begin with you if I can. Yeah, first of all, I think, Jamie, that uh, the UK is still taken seriously as a military power in Europe and, and by Europe. And, and we certainly would, would prefer to have the U UK on our side and as integrated as it's willing to be. The problem, as, uh, as Peter uh, rightly said, has been ideological. The UK has refused to commit to any kind of structured relationship with the EU in the areas of uh, security and defense and uh, other than sort of uh, fight, you know, crime fighting and uh, counterterrorism. And so um, at the moment, they haven't got to sort of uh, square one. And square one would involve the UK in, in at least signing a sort of in, uh, agreements with the EU about respecting the confidentiality of information and stuff like that. Um, um, and th that, that's holding up um, uh, Britain's cooperation in the Horizon uh, Science Programme. It's holding up uh, um, uh, any uh, cooperation with the EU in the space. Uh, and these are areas that are really important strategically. 
the, the UK is still seen as a serious military power, even though uh, it talks above the weight that it punches above, if I can put it that way. Um, it talks a bigger game than, than, than it really uh, uh, has in terms of military capabilities. Nevertheless, one of the things I think that, that everybody knows is that the UK is a power with global reach, uh, a power that is, is willing to engage militarily, willing to fight, uh, and has that tradition, which many European countries don't have. And in that sense, uh, alongside France, it is one of the two leading military powers in Europe. And to have one of those two powers outside of the tent and not willing to engage with the EU on that stuff is a huge handicap for the EU. Um, now, the UK, in my view, the UK's uh, strategic review pointed in the direction of lighter, more nimble, uh, uh, and uh, m you know, more 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 mobile special forces and so on as the as the future um, of defence. Um, just at a time where the Ukraine war has, to a degree, brought us brought NATO and uh, European powers a bit more back to. Uh, Earth uh, to, to the sort of 20th century warfare of tanks and artillery and so on. Um, and so we, 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 I, I, I'm not sure the extent to the, which that may affect UK thinking. I actually think that by and large that UK review got it right uh, in the sense that uh, I think that NATO has a, a, a tendency to be trying to prepare to fight the last war and that even the uh, 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 way the conflict has gone in Ukraine has shown that there's a premium for being nimble, improvising uh, um, uh, for, for uh, missiles and anti-tank weapons over uh, uh, tanks and heavy artillery and so on. Now, military, uh, some military experts disagree on that, but I think that to that extent the UK got it right. But you always have this problem with the with the, with, with the UK of will it have the means to to actually uh, realize its ambitions. And I think uh, 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 particularly in the naval space, I think that's a very big question. Um, and the budget increases that have been announced, and uh, if again, if they're implemented and if they're not eaten up by inflation, uh, the defense budget increases that have been announced are really just going to pay for stuff that's already on order. It's not really for new kit, it's that there was a huge gap in the funding of UK arms procurement. So it's welcome, but I'm not sure that it will solve all of those issues. Let, okay. let me, Peter. Um, Peter, Peter, the final word is yours. Thank you very much. Um, where shall I, let, let me start again. You can cut that pause out. First of all, I mean, let's be clear, um, the UK is effectively uh, West Europe's major military power. I mean, we do have uh, a more significant defence budget and overall, I think, more uh, powerful armed forces even than France, rather differently structured. So yes, we bring a lot to the party here. And if Liz Truss's promise to increase defence spending to 3% of GDP was ever carried out, then we would be even more uh, compelling as a defence partner. We'll see in the current uh, economic climate whether that is possible. Uh, the problem with the British armed forces is that they are configured for um, fighting in faraway places like Iraq and Afghanistan and projecting global influence, hence this two aircraft carriers and the eye-wateringly expensive jets to put on them. Um, and that made some sense when uh, we were talking about an Indo-Pacific tilt uh, in the integrated review last year. 
uh, we've now made a massive tilt back to European security. And we've discovered that our premier national security priority is the security of Europe, our neighborhood. And the British armed forces are not organized, structured, equipped for land fighting in Europe. And therefore, a lot of the re-equipment is going to have to be done now. Uh, having done a lot for the Navy and the Air Force, is going to be the Army. The Army needs a significant uh, re-equipment program, uh, whether it's in the more light, agile uh, area that Paul talks about, or simply having deep enough stocks of ammunition and artillery and missiles to actually um, supply a friend and ally fighting a major war like Ukraine or indeed fight one ourselves. So that's, that's going to be a major factor. Um, but I, therefore, I think there is uh, scope for a new uh, review. My criticism of the integrated review of 2021 is not that it lacked ideas. It was full of ideas for Britain to be a superpower in all kinds of domains. It didn't make any choices. It didn't set any priorities. And it didn't recognize that uh, resources are finite. So I think this new one has now to set about reorganizing British defense for uh, an era where uh, the threat is territorial, it's much closer to home, uh, and involves classic conventional armed forces, as well as cyber and space and agile light forces. That's an expensive bill, but we are far ahead, for example, of the Germans in turning um, intention into real military capability. It's going to take years, I think, for that to appear in Germany. And therefore, I think UK should be an attractive partner for the Europeans when London feels able to engage seriously and consistently with them as partners, getting over our ideological block about the EU. That's certainly my profound wish. Well, that's a very good note to end on, uh, Peter. Uh, Peter, Lord Peter Ricketts, uh, Paul Taylor, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and I could have kept it going for a lot, lot longer. We've had uh, two of the finest uh, connoisseurs of UK French relations, of UK EU relations, of the European security scene. Lots of uh, great insights there. My takeaways are uh, obviously. It's in the uh, enduring interest of both sides to cooperate. There are plenty of avenues of cooperation that are there, uh, if uh, we so wish. Um, we obviously need uh, to make facts and interests prevail over ideology. Uh, we need to rebuild trust. It's going to be uh, a long-term uh, enterprise. But we've seen today that Ukraine, the European political community, defense industrial uh, cooperation, more broadly security cooperation, uh, are the hooks that are there. So let's hope that both London and Brussels uh, have the good sense uh, to take those opportunities. But again, uh, Peter Ricketts, Paul Taylor, thanks for uh, being uh, with us on the Friends of Europe podcast uh, uh, today. Thank you, dear viewers and listeners, as always, for tuning in and uh, look forward to to, uh, seeing you next week but bye for now that's it for this frankly speaking podcast consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on twitter instagram linkedin or facebook and don't forget to tune in again this time next week